This is episode 206 of That Shakespeare Life. As we get started this week, I want to let you know that our show notes have a new feature. If you haven't checked this out yet, just for patrons, we now have an expansion pack attached to the regular show notes you expect from That Shakespeare Life. At the bottom of the regular show notes, you will now see a Patreon button. When you support our show at $5 a month or higher, the show notes will now expand for you to reveal woodcuts, paintings, portraits, and archival documents related to the topic we're discussing on the show. Click the Patreon button at the bottom of the show notes to unlock those immediately and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Well, I am Nigel Wood. I'm Professor of Literature at Loughborough University. Another great method for studying the history of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. At the time that Shakespeare was writing in the early 1600s for this particular play, cataract surgery had just moved into England during the Elizabethan era. And it would have been a new phenomenon that his viewers may have heard about or seen. And the idea of somebody having their eyes injured as they're strapped to a chair on a stage and screaming in pain as their eyes are injured may actually represent or appear similar to cataract surgery. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In a 16th century painting by Caspar Stromayar, two men, presumably doctors, are standing behind a table on which a set of surgical instruments are laid out very neatly. In the notes for the painting, we discover that some of the instruments are specifically for surgery of the eye. Cataract surgery, like the one being prepared for in this painting, was just becoming widespread during Shakespeare's lifetime and was performed to remove that pearly film that developed over the surface of the eye. In Shakespeare's The Tempest, Ferdinand uses the phrase, quote, those are pearls that were his eyes, end quote. Again, in Rape of Lucrece, Shakespeare calls attention to pearly eyes when he writes, quote, his eyes drop fire, no water thence proceeds, those round, clear pearls of his, end quote. Additionally, in both King Lear and Shakespeare's Henry VI Part II, there are references in the dialogue to specific procedures and even specific diseases of the eye. The novelty of this new surgery, combined with the very public and performative nature of the procedure itself, with it often being performed in the street on public display, is plausible to think that William Shakespeare may have been studying up on this new science. Based on the parallels found in Shakespeare's plays, some scholars even suggest that William Shakespeare may have read books like Charles Etienne's Defense of Contraries, translated from French to English in 1593, or Thomas Cooper's 1578 Medical Dictionary that defines cataracts as a disease of the eyes when a tough humor like a jelly droppeth out. To help us explore the history of cataract surgery, as well as the references to the procedure that we find in Shakespeare's plays, is our guest and professional ophthalmologist, Dr. Chris Leffler. 
Chris Leffler is an ophthalmologist and professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is the author of The History of Cataract Surgery from Couching to Phacoemulsification, published in the Annals of Translational Medicine in 2020. He currently practices ophthalmology at the Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center and is associate professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Virginia Commonwealth University. He has written a book called The History of Glaucoma and has a new book coming out called The History of Cataracts that looks specifically at the history of this one procedure. You can find links to Chris and his work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What were the signs and symptoms used to diagnose cataracts in the 16th century? Well, the most important one would simply be that the person couldn't see. When you have a very bad cataract, you can still distinguish light from dark but you can't see much else. So that's the very worst cataract. And that would be the best indication at that time for cataract surgery. They listed some other symptoms, which they said were symptoms of cataracts, symptoms of mild cataracts that they wouldn't usually treat surgically, such as seeing flies or little things swirling around. And in fact, that's probably today, we wouldn't really say that was a symptom of a cataract but they didn't have really good tools for examining the eye, so they couldn't distinguish a lot of different diseases that we can distinguish today. So what is meant by the term couching that we see in context of cataracts in the 16th century? So the kind of surgery that was done in the 16th century and really even in antiquity, even before the time of Christ, was called couching, and it just means pushing the lens into the back of the eye. And The word couching in the English language came from French a long time before it was used in an ophthalmic sense, and it's from the the verb uh, coucher, to lay down in in French, and in the 1500s, really more towards the end of the 1500s, around the time of Shakespeare, people began to use that English term couch in an ophthalmic sense, to describe this surgery that had been around since antiquity, which was simply using a rod to push the opaque crystalline lens into the back of the eye to get it out of the visual pathway so the person could see again. Did the field of ophthalmology exist in Shakespeare's lifetime, or what kind of physician would it be that's performing these procedures? Well, the surgery existed. It wasn't always an eye specialist but it might be. As some people did just focus on doing these eye procedures, and they were termed oculists. And the term oculist really doesn't enter the English language until around the 1580s. And that's when people start specializing in eyes. You still might have some people who would do ophthalmology and also surgery for bladder stones or lithotomy or a hair lip surgery or hernia surgery. So some people were more generalized surgeons, but there were people who came in around the time of Shakespeare who would have just focused on ophthalmology. So you mentioned that cataract patients can see 
light and dark, but they can't see much else. And that, to me, sounds like something that would be described as blindness, which makes me wonder whether there were ever instances in the 16th century where someone had this surgery for the purpose of curing blindness. Did someone ever say, I'm, I'm cured of blindness, now I can see? Definitely. The surgery could fail a lot because you could get an infection they didn't understand germs and antisepsis. So they didn't really take precautions for sterility as we do today. And so definitely the surgery could fail. You could also have a retinal detachment, which would be a cause of failure, but the surgery would succeed sometimes. And there were definitely people who had the surgery done successfully because it wasn't as advanced as what we have today. It was a more primitive type of cataract surgery, you would wait until the cataract was was very se- severe and, and you could hardly see anything. But yes, there were definitely instances in the early 1600s in England, even at the end of the 1500s, where people did have their vision restored. So what instruments were they using? You mentioned it's a primitive type of surgery. What What would we expect to see applied here? So. In antiquity, it was simply a a needle or a rod that was used, and it was just a single instrument would be used to penetrate the white part of the eye to push the lens out of the way. They didn't use an eyelid speculum to hold the eyelids open. Sometimes you would have to push the lens down repeatedly to keep it down. Other times you you would hold it down for quite a while to try to keep it out of the visual axis. In the medieval Arabic period, there were some eye surgeons who started to use a lancet to make a little incision in the white part of the eye, and then they would use a different instrument, a a rod, to push the lens out of the way. And that type of surgery moved into India, but it didn't really uh, become common in Europe, and it wasn't common in England. So in England, it was it was a, a more straightforward or simple procedure, just using a single a single rod or, or needle to push the lens out of the way. What was the process of getting cataract surgery done in the 16th century? Was the patient awake, or was there a special chair or a surgical time that you had to use, or what kind of recovery time was like for patients like this? I mean, how did they heal? What was the start to finish process of going through this procedure? So there were a variety of different ways this could happen. There were some itinerant practitioners. Some would have different performances they would do on a stage. There there would be trapeze artists or rope walkers. Sometimes they would play music. Sometimes they would do what's essentially gambling. And um, you would throw a silver cup in and they might throw it back with medicine or a prize. It was essentially uh, gambling. So some people were mountebanks and would have a show essentially. Other people would uh, open at a fair and they would have a little booth. It was, they wouldn't have a big show going along with it, but it was a little medical booth that would be part of a, a city fair. And other people would go to patients' homes to do it or sometimes the patients would go to the doctor's homes. You don't really hear about it in the 1600s being done in hospitals. That really starts in the 1720s in in England that you would have it done in hospitals. So there's a variety of um, settings, but in antiquity, 
certainly in the medieval Arabic period, the person was sitting on the ground or maybe sitting on a pillow. But in the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, the person was sitting on a bench or on a chair. The pictures I've seen at that time, the chairs didn't have any arms, uh, but they did have a back. There'd be an attendant behind the patient holding their head still. Of course, there was no anesthesia uh, because they, they just didn't have it. After the procedure, the person would have to lay down, usually for nine days. They would have a dressing on the eye, linen and, and egg white. The dressing would be changed every few days, and they were basically just supposed to lie down in a, in a dark room in, in a quiet place for, for a week or so. I can't imagine having surgery in front of an audience with like a circus going on behind you while, while you've got this going on. That's incredible that they were performing this procedure that way. Certainly a completely different format than what we think of today. Exactly. And, and I know today with cataracts, we do associate it with old age, but in the paper published in Annals of Translational Medicine, where you and your co-authors write about the history of cataracts, you cite that in the past, cataract surgery was specifically not recommended for the elderly or for children. Chris, will you explain for us why cataracts seems to be an issue for the middle-aged population in centuries past when today it's more commonly associated with older age? Well, so that was a teaching which dates from antiquity. It's in Celsus, who wrote around the time of Christ. It's also in the Sushruta Samhita, which is an ancient Indian work. And it talked about how cataract surgery works best for the Middle Ages as opposed to the very young or the very old. And I think really, even in antiquity or in the Middle Ages or, or in the Renaissance, there probably were, despite that teaching, some older people who got cataract surgery done, and obviously older people do get cataracts. In the ancient and medieval period, or even the early modern period, they didn't have a, a very good way of examining the eye. So they didn't know if the person also had glaucoma or macular degeneration or a retinal detachment. So they couldn't really rule out other types of pathology. And so older people were more likely to have other types of pathology, say, macular degeneration. And, and if they had severe macular degeneration and you did a cataract surgery, it may fail just because they had other problems going on. So in those earlier periods, if you did a cataract surgery, you could be, say, less certain that it would work in, in the very oldest patients. But I still think it it was done even in people who were 70 or 80 or 90 years old. It's just that there was this teaching to beware of the fact that you really wouldn't be able to guarantee the outcome. In Shakespeare's plays, there are strong representations of blindness, one of which comes from Shakespeare's Henry VI, Part Two, when the Duke of Gloucester says, if thou hadst been born blind, thou mightest as well have known all our names as thus to name the several colors we do wear. Sight may distinguish of colors, but suddenly to nominate them all, it is impossible. Chris, this line, based on your research, comes from a real story that happened in history. What is the story that Shakespeare's referencing here? So there was a story published by Thomas Moore in 1529, and he refers to a story that supposedly took place in the 1400s when there was a beggar who said that he was miraculously cured of blindness 
And the Duke of Gloucester, who lived from 1390 to 1447, said that it would be impossible for this beggar to to name the colors. If he had been miraculously cured, he might be able to see them, but he wouldn't be able to name them. And he had the, the beggar set in the stocks as punishment. And so there is a, a, a historical origin to the story. When Shakespeare wrote that play between 1590 and 1592, cataract surgery for the congenitally blind was not really known in England. And it was considered essentially a miracle to improve the vision in in children who had been born blind or adults who had been born blind. And it wasn't until after 1625 that you begin to get the first reports in England of congenital cataract surgery. Another famous episode of blindness from Shakespeare's plays happens in King Lear when Gloucester is blinded on the orders of Cornwall. At the end of the attack, Cornwall cries out, out, vile jelly. Chris, this reference may fly past just completely. Anyone not familiar with the particulars of the science of the eye and how cataract surgery works in particular. But is this line a reference to a specific eye disease? Well, I think it very well may be a parody or a reference to cataract surgery. At the time that Shakespeare was writing in the early 1600s for this particular play, cataract surgery had just moved into England during the Elizabethan era. And it would have been a new phenomenon that his viewers may have heard about or seen. And the idea of somebody having their eyes injured as they're strapped to a chair on a stage and screaming in pain as their eyes are injured may actually represent or appear similar to cataract surgery. And uh, Shakespeare must have known something about the interior of the eye because there really is a a jelly-like substance inside the eye, which is uh, vitreous. And so you can find references at the time to people having their eyes injured and the word jelly being used to describe the vitreous that comes out of the eye. And there were even some uh, dictionaries at the time that we know uh, Shakespeare read. The Thomas Cooper Dictionary defined a cataract as a disease of the eye when a tough humor like a jelly droppeth out. And also Charles Etienne's Defense of Contraries is thought to have been uh, possibly an inspiration for uh, Shakespeare. He also refers to an eye jelly as an ophthalmic disease. So it's possible that Shakespeare was was obliquely referring to cataract surgery. This is completely fascinating information that I know we would love to explore further. Can you point us in the right direction here? What are some of your favorite books or resources you can suggest we use to explore this history further? There's a, a variety of references. We did a, a paper, which you can find online for free, called The First Cataract Surgeons in the British Isle, and specifically with reference to the Shakespeare part of that, I do give um, very specific references to Shakespeare's works and and the other works that he may have read uh, that relate to cataract surgery in that thesis. Those are excellent resources, and we will link to all of these in the show notes for today's episode, so make sure you stay tuned for the link to go find those. Now, Chris, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed uh, Sapiens by Harari. 
excellent choice. I think you are our only guest that has made that selection, but it sounds like a good one for your desert island for sure. (laughs) It's a good read. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm working on a book, The History of Cataract Surgery. We did one before. That's The History of Glaucoma. And uh, now we're coming back and doing a book just on the history of cataract surgery, starting in antiquity and going all up to the modern era. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see that come out. Make sure you let us know so we can link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Thank you so much, Chris Leffler, for being here and talking us through what cataract surgery was like for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. If you enjoyed our show today, please be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone you know who would enjoy learning something new about the Bard. As always, the show notes are the best place to explore our episode today with the links we promised to all of the resources we mentioned, along with direct links to Chris's work on cataracts history and the book recommendations you can use to study this topic further. Find all these things in the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 206. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP206. Before you go, I promised I would explain the detailed show notes. You see, for each episode I put together here, there's a substantial amount of research which builds up into this collection of woodcuts, paintings, and archival documents related to our topic, and they just sort of sit on my desk. Now, I'm taking all of that bonus history and I'm putting it into what I'm calling detailed show notes for each episode. This is essentially an expansion of our standard show notes. For example, this week, in addition to the links to Chris's work and book recommendations on cataract surgery, I also also have paintings of cataract surgery, woodcuts of the eye surgery, and links to 16th century manuals and medical dictionaries that Shakespeare would have referenced for those specific references we found in his plays. This bonus visual content is part of the detailed show notes. Support on Patreon of just $5 a month gets you access to all of those details for today's episode and every single other detailed show notes we have for our library of over 200 history episodes here on That Shakespeare Life. You can try it out for yourself right now using the orange Patreon button located at the bottom of the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 206. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP206. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.